My name is Rob. For those of you I don't know, I'm one of the teaching pastors here, and uh, y'all figured out for by now, if you've been here a little while, we do everything in team. We lead worship in team. We teach in team. It's really what we're all about, and I'm a part of the teaching team here. So if you're new and you come each given Sunday, it's kind of hard to visit our church, isn't it? Because there's a different preacher every time you come three or four weeks in a row. You'll typically hear about uh, three of us that'll come. We've been walking through this series on Revelation. I'm going to go ahead and invite you to turn, open your Bibles to Revelation chapter 2, the passage that Sharon just read for us. Before we actually get into the passage, though, and while you're turning there, let me make a a comment on something that Tim announced, the night of worship that's on this Wednesday. Uh, I can't tell you how excited I am about this night. And for me, it's pretty personal for me and my family. I want to explain why that is. When we started having kids, so when our oldest, Ansley, was real young, so this was about nine, ten years ago, I felt that there was this um, something missing in the way that, that we typically approach Easter. And Tim kind of alluded to that. He said Easter sort of sneaks up on us. And if you compare it to the Christmas season, right, all the buildup, you know, obviously some of that's, you know, not necessarily spiritual. But even in the non-spiritual parts of the Christmas buildup, there's something um, sort of special and soul-ish about that. And if you think about the church history and church calendar, Easter actually is the more weighty spiritual holiday. Like, that's the one that, that we should really rise up and celebrate. And all, typically, at least around my household growing up, it was kind of like, oh, it's Easter Sunday. That means I wear my finest clothes, you know, and I get a basket with, like, the plastic grass at the end after church and then the bunch of candy that rots my teeth, and that, that's Easter, right? Pretty much. So about 10 years ago, my wife and I said, what would it look like for us to establish some traditions in our home to bring some depth of meaning and richness to the celebration of the Easter season, not just the day of Easter? So we began to implement some things. And I can't tell you how special it's been for our family. And here's the thing. We don't do everything right as parents. In fact, I'm right there with you all struggling how to know how to be godly parents. But this is one thing that we feel like has borne a lot of fruit in our family is some of these traditions we've done in Easter. So what we're going to do as a church body is begin some of that here. And it's going to start this Wednesday night of thinking about the month of March leading up to Easter and how we as a body can engage in that as we prepare our hearts for Easter, as Tim said. So would strongly encourage you to be there if you're able to be here on Wednesday. Not, not everybody's free. If you have children that are above kindergarten, bring them in the service. It'll be a family-friendly service. It'll be uh, fairly short, and uh, I think you'll be glad that you came on Wednesday. All right, Revelation. We're on the fourth church. We've been walking through these seven churches. So we're, we're, by the time today ends, we're a little more than halfway through this, and I've got to tell you up front, this is a heavy passage. It's a weighty passage. This is probably like the strongest condemnation that any of the seven churches get, and it's really interesting because this church is also doing a lot of things right and we'll talk about that in a minute. And so if you're new, if you're visiting here this morning, by the end of the service, you're going to be like, man, that was kind of heavy. And here's what I'd say. It's not always this heavy, but when the word of God is heavy, we go heavy, right? We're going to stay faithful to the scriptures. And the spirit of God had kind of a weighty, heavy message of, of condemnation for this church. But there's also hope. There's always hope. And we're going to talk about the hope as well. So that's a little bit of set the stage of where we're going to go. Now, I believe we need this letter as heavy as it is, as weighty as it is, and sort of as difficult as it is. I mean, it's, it's kind of hard to understand. If you were dialed into what Sharon was reading, you're like, Jezebel, and there's some idol worship, and there's immorality, and I don't know what, how that relates to me. I think it's difficult to understand this passage. I think it's, it's difficult to relate to this passage. But then when you actually do relate to the passage, it's, it's heavy, right? 
But th- this is what God has for us, I believe, this morning. And I think we need this passage. And the best way I can illustrate why we need this passage is to retell you a story that Abraham Lincoln told to his cabinet. Abraham Lincoln loved to tell stories. And, you know, he had this sort of homespun style. He really used parables, not, not that dissimilar to how Jesus used parables. And one time he was sitting down with his cabinet and they were talking about how some advisors, some close people to him in his administration were actually spies. Like they weren't faithful. And there's this sense of like, who can we trust anymore? And he told them this story. Abraham Lincoln said there was a farmer who had a tree by his house. It was a majestic looking tree and apparently perfect in every part, tall, straight, immense in size, the grand old sentinel of his forest home. That's a great sentence. One morning, while at work in his garden, he saw a squirrel run up the tree into a hole. He thought the tree might be hollow. He proceeded to examine it carefully, and much to his surprise, he found that the stately tree that he had valued for its beauty and grandeur to be the pride and protection of his little farmhouse, the tree was hollow from top to bottom. Only a rim of sound wood remained, barely sufficient to support its great weight. What was he to do? If he cut it down, it would do great damage with its great length and spreading branches. But if he let it remain, his family would be in constant danger. In a storm, it might fall or the wind might blow the tree against his house and crush his home and his family. What should he do? As he turned away, he said sadly, I wish I had never seen the squirrel. Now, when I think about that story, it reminds me of two things. Number one, like the tree, it is very possible for us to look great on the outside, be sort of producing all this work, be doing these things, be looking like, hey, I'm, I'm got it together, I'm solid, I, I, I really am living out this American dream with a Christian spin on it, or I'm light, righteous and holy, but on the inside, we can be hollow, and we can be empty and, and sick inside and dying inside. This story also reminds me that like the farmer, if we're honest, we actually don't like to take a close look. We don't like to go below the surface and dig down into what's actually true in our hearts, what's actually really happening below the beautiful exterior. We don't like to do that, I think, because we don't like that weight or that responsibility of knowing what to do with it. That's where the farmer was. What am I going to do? I wish I'd never seen the squirrel. But here's the thing. If that farmer's really honest, if he sort of gets past that initial sense of like, oh man, he needed to see that squirrel. That was a providential occurrence for him to see that squirrel. He might just save his family's life because he saw that squirrel. And so this is what Jesus is doing to this church. It's heavy, it's weighted, but he's saying, I see your deeds, good and bad, and I want to focus on something below the beautiful exterior, church at Thyatira, and I want you to see this, and I'm going to call some stuff out of you that will kill you if you do not address this now. So let's jump into our text this morning. I'm going to try my best to get through this as quickly as I can to leave some room at the end for the application. Because without that time at the end, I don't think this is really going to sink in. And I don't think we'll be able to relate to this church. It sounds so foreign to us. So let's just begin. We'll go verse by verse as we typically do. Verse 18. To the angel of the church of Thyatira write, The Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire and his feet are like burnished bronze, says this. Just pause. 
Pause. Here's what verse 18 does. It addresses the recipient of the letter and it talks about the author of the letter. So let's talk first about the recipient to the church at Thyatira. Where in the world's Thyatira? Well, it, it's in Asia. It's one of those seven churches, as you know, the, the, it's going through kind of a counterclockwise circle as the servant or the person, the herald that would have um, brought these letters to the churches would have traveled around from the island of Patmos all the way around uh, that part of Asia Minor. And it gets to Thyatira. Now, Thyatira was the smallest city of any of these seven. In fact, there's very little that we know about Thyatira. It was insignificant. I think it's interesting that the smallest city gets the longest letter. About the only thing we know about Thyatira is it was a a big center of commerce. It was right on a, a popular trade route. And so they had all of these trade guilds that had developed. And you're thinking, what's a trade guild? Well, back in that day, if you really wanted your business to flourish, you would join a trade guild, and it was a combination of what we would think of as maybe a, a labor union combined with a fraternity. And if you were inside the trade guild, you'd have opportunities to sort of take advantage of all that that entailed. If you're outside of the trade guild, it was really hard to make a living. So in this city of Thyatira, they had all these trade guilds. Let me read to you some of the ones that archaeological evidence have uncovered, these trade guilds that existed in the city of Thyatira. Wool workers, linen workers, makers of outer garments, dyers, leather workers, tanners, potters, bakers, slave dealers, bronze smiths, all these different industries. You might remember uh, from from study of uh, Philippians that Lydia, who is the first convert in Philippi, was originally from Thyatira. She had moved from Thyatira to Philippi. She was a businesswoman. What does she deal in? Dyed cloth, particularly purple. Right? So we, we describe her, Lydia, the seller of purple. She'd come from this place with all these industries and all this commerce. Now, each letter begins with addressing the city, and then it describes the author. And we know the author of each of these letters is Christ, but it doesn't just say, from Jesus. It gives particular descriptions that match the content of the letter. And each of these descriptions of Jesus harkens back to Revelation chapter 1 when Jesus revealed himself to John in all of Jesus' glory. If you were here three or four weeks ago, we talked about that passage. In this particular letter to Thyatira, here's the part of the glory of Christ that these Christians need to be reminded of. His eyes, right? If you go back and look at the text, eyes like a flame of fire, his feet like burnished bronze, and his title, the Son of God. Now, the title Son of God would have reminded them that he is God himself. He's not one of the gods. He is the God, the only God. In fact, the main God in the city of of Thyatira was uh, this God called, here he is, Tyramus. And the inscription on the coin with this picture of this so-called God said, a son of the gods. And so in contrast to a son of the gods, Jesus is the son. Of God. So the reminder of that, number one. Now, what's this deal with his eyes like blazing fire? This is a reminder that Jesus sees everything. Like there's no secrets. His eyes pierce through the exterior to see what's actually happening in in the hollowness of the tree, so to speak. The the Thyatirans needed to know that Jesus sees everything. And then the bronze feet, probably what that reminds them is that Jesus is strong. He is solid. He's not like these little idols you can hold in your hand. Right? He's not going anywhere. Strength and power, bronze shining, burnished bronze in his feet. Now, the letter goes on and begins, as they all do, with, with, with uh, commendation. Here's what you're doing well. So let's look at that in verse 19. I know your deeds, 
and your love and faith and service and perseverance and that your deeds of late are greater than the first. This is a really great list. If you think about each one of those, uh, I don't know that there could be a better commendation of a church. So you have good deeds. You've got strong love. What can be better than that? You've got faith. All the times God is, is commending people for their faith throughout the Bible. You have service. They're following the example of Jesus who washed his disciples' feet. You have perseverance. So they're not giving up when the going gets tough. And if that wasn't enough, you're, you're, you're actually growing, right? Your deeds of late are greater than the first. So they're doing really well. In other words, they look fantastic on the outside. I imagine the elders, when they were, had this letter read to them, they, they heard that first sentence, and they, they probably just wanted to stop right there, right? Just give each other high fives. Nailed it. We got it. You know, and then the letter continues. And you sort of like feel that building up, right? I know your deeds, all this good stuff. You look beautiful on the outside. But, but, verse 20. But I have this against you, that you tolerate the woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess. And she teaches and leads my bondservants astray so that they commit acts of immorality and eat things sacrificed to idols. And it goes on, we'll read the rest in a minute, but it goes on to be one of the heaviest and, and I would even say scariest rebukes of all the seven churches. Despite the fact that this church is really doing a lot of things great. What's going on? Who's Jezebel? Well, it's interesting. You study this passage and uh, most people agree that this probably wasn't her actual real name. It was a title that Jesus was giving her to sort of um, reveal her heart and what was really going on. This was probably a woman of influence in this church. You know, it says she calls herself a prophetess. So she actually was probably somewhat in the leadership of the church. She would have been someone that the church would have been leaning on and looking to for leadership. She calls herself a prophetess and, and you've allowed her to be a part of your teaching. You've allowed her to be a part of her leadership and he's giving her this name Jezebel to sort of call out what's actually going on here. Now to understand that, you've got to remember who Jezebel was in the Old Testament the most wicked woman in the Bible. Right? I mean, this woman makes Delilah look like a Disney princess. All right? Jezebel was wicked. She was evil. Who was she? Well, you look back in the book of 1 Kings. She was a queen of Israel. Imagine that. She, didn't, she wasn't born in, in Israel. She, she wasn't a, a Hebrew. Ahab, who was her husband, King Ahab, had gone to another nation, and in order to sort of make a deal of peace with this other nation, he took a wife from that nation, right? That was the custom in the day. God said, never do that. Ahab did it. And you know what happened? Jezebel comes in, and instead of just not worshiping Yahweh, she blatantly pulls the nation away from Yahweh worship into worshiping all these false idols, primarily Baal or Baal. And the worship of Baal, I won't go into the detail, but it's all kind of immoral, depraved worship practices. And, and the nation of Israel followed this down. Not only that, but Jezebel had the prophets of Yahweh killed. And you remember Elijah, he, Elijah's the only prophet that, that stands up to her and, you know, God gives him that victory. But Jezebel is a terror and a torment to the nation. And so to be assigned that name Jezebel, you don't want to have the name Jezebel. Now, I knew I was going to say that sentence, and so I, but before the service, I went online to our, our um, database and I made sure that no one in our body was named Jezebel because I was going to feel really bad. So... <laughs> I have confidence that your name's not Jezebel, unless you're a visitor, in which case you came on the wrong Sunday. <laughs> this is one of those names like Judas. Like parents don't name their daughter Jezebel. So for Jesus to say, this woman is Jezebel, they would have been like, 
whoa, what do you mean she's Jezebel? She's one of our teachers, right? She calls herself a prophetess, but she's leading the people astray. Now, I've got to go one other layer deeper in terms of the cultural and history of this for you to really understand what's happening here. Trade guilds. I told you the trade guilds, like if you weren't in a trade guild, it was really hard to, to make a living. Well, that's one thing, but the real problem with these trade guilds are they each had a patron god. So like this, the coppersmiths, you know, whatever it was, bronze, whatever, they would have their, you know, patron god of, of bronze and, and the, um, the, the wool workers or patron god of wool. And then about once a month, they would get together and have these banquets and they would kill an animal. They would sacrifice that meat to the patron god, the idol. And then they would eat the meat. This is the food sacrificed to idols. This is, what, this is what he's talking about here. And then those banquets would typically sort of degenerate into licentiousness and sexual immorality. And that was part of their worship. So it wasn't just like a, a business meeting, okay? And this is how business operated. It was like this fraternity gone wickedly wrong, all in worship of this false God. And so what is happening here is this woman, who's part of church influence, part of church leadership, was essentially telling the people, it is okay for you to participate in these trade guild banquets. And after all, we know that they're not real gods. So just go and participate. You don't have to really believe that it's a god. Just be a part of this so that you don't lose your job. And probably what was happening is some of the church were participating in these. They were eating this food sacrificed to idols. And regardless of what they thought in their own theology in their mind, they were living out a false theology. And then probably some of them were stumbling into sexual immorality because that was part of the context of the culture at that time. They were trying to be one of the guys. Jesus calls this out. He says, this is a big deal. Although your works on the exterior look magnificent, there is an enemy in your midst that is robbing you of spiritual vitality. And if this is not addressed now, the tree of your church will be hollow and empty and will fall. You see, now, here's where Christ goes with this. He says, I love this church too much not to engage in this area of death, not to address this problem and cut through the exterior beautiful core and address what's happening in here. So he calls out Jezebel. Now, if you look at verse 21, you see the mercy and grace of God appear even in the midst of this evil woman, Jezebel. Check it out. I gave her, Jezebel, time to repent and she does not want to repent of her immorality. I gave her time to repent, even Jezebel. Even this evil, wicked woman, she had time. Now, if you imagine what's happening, what's really going on here is you have uh, th this church, because of this evil teaching, it's essentially on like a, a, li a life raft heading on the river toward a waterfall. And the people that are involved in these practices that have followed this woman's teaching that are, that are sort of, you know, just not taking seriously the, the evil of what's happening at these trade guild banquets, they're heading over the edge. And God's judgment is coming because he loves his church. And what he's saying in this passage is, look, I'm providing an off-ramp. There's a stream over to your right that if you steer the raft in that direction, you avoid the waterfall. And I'm going to put a big sign up that says, this way to avoid danger. This way to get off the river. Repent, repent, right? That's what repentance is. It's an off-ramp, right? God's judgment is for the unrepentant sinner. Problem is, Jezebel does not want to repent. So what will Christ do? Verse 22. 
Behold, I will throw her on a bed of sickness and those who commit adultery with her into great tribulation. Here it is again, unless they repent, unless they repent of her deeds. Now, the adultery described here, it might have been literal or it might have been figurative. In other words, spiritual adultery. So they're, they're, they're going away from their um, belief that in one God and, and they are intermingling with other gods, spiritual adultery. Again here, the emphasis on repentance. Repentance. Verse 23, here's what will happen. I will kill her children with pestilence. Now, this was not her literal children, but this was a figurative way of talking about her disciples, those that were going along with her, those that were believing and following her teaching. And all the churches will know that I am he who searches the minds and hearts, and I will give to each one of you according to your deeds. In other words, what Christ is saying here is this wonderful tree that's been growing in Thyatira, this church that's so commendable in many, many ways, what's happening because of this core sin internally that no one else but me can see is it's going to cause you to collapse and all the other churches around are going to say wow wow look at this and and he's saying that unless you repent this church is going to be a sign for everyone else of what happens when you don't take inner core sin seriously this is weighty this is heavy i think about it this way jesus is giving this church a spiritual mri and he says there's a cancer inside And you may not like that I'm calling out to you this cancer, but the only way that you're going to live, the only way that you're going to survive is if you allow me to do spiritual surgery on your heart. I wish to dig in deep. I wish to cut past all the exterior and I wish to get in where the illness is, where the sickness is, and I would remove it from you so that you can live. It's a message of hope, but it's a weighty message as well. What did Jesus see when he did his spiritual MRI on Thyatira? He saw an enemy who was deceiving them, who was robbing them of life, who was leading them down a path that was hollowing them out inside. And he loved them enough to say, enough, I will not allow this anymore. Verses 24 and 25, but I say to you, the rest who are in Thyatira, who do not hold to this teaching, who have not known the deep things of Satan, as they call them, I place no other burden on you. Nevertheless, what you have, hold fast until I come. In other words, he's saying, those of you who know the truth, hold on to it. Don't compromise. Don't tolerate teaching that you know is not biblical. Don't turn away from your commitment to me. Don't commit spiritual adultery with these so-called gods because it will do deep harm to your soul. Verses 26 through 29, we find the promise. He who overcomes, he who keeps my deeds until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations, and he shall rule them with a rod of iron, as the vessels of the potter are broken to pieces, as I also have received authority from my Father, and I will give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. I love the promises that Jesus gave. They're a little bit confounding, but if you dig into them, they're beautiful. First of all, he's saying, I will give you the nations, authority over the nations. In other words, those who hold firm to truth will in the end be the ones that have a voice to speak into culture. You see, isn't that interesting? Those who hold on to the truth in the end will be the ones that will, under Christ's rule, be able to have authority and oversight over the nations. 
And I think he's talking quite literally there about the millennial kingdom and then the new earth to come. Secondly, I will give you the morning star. What in the world does this mean? We don't know exactly. I think there's a tremendous hint. The end of Revelation, Revelation 22, Jesus calls himself the morning star. So I think there's a sense of the, the presence of Christ, intimacy with Christ. And if, if you really read throughout Scripture, there's nothing more that fulfilling in our lives. There's nothing that we should desire more and deep down our soul desires than to know and be known by our Savior, Jesus Christ. And that's the promise for those that stand firm. That stand firm. Well, what are we going to do with this passage? We've got about... 10 minutes left. I want to talk about the so what. I want us to really try to drill down and say, all right, we've got idol worship. We've got these trade guilds. We've got sexual immorality. How does this relate to me? How does this relate to the church fellowship, Franklin? What does this really have to do with us? And I want to talk about this in three, or actually two, two streams. Number one, there's a subset of you in this room who have been bearing the weight of a growing hollow emptiness that is being caused by an area of sin in your life that you've lost control over. It's probably secret sin. You may not feel the weight of it every morning, but there are times when it's hard to come to church. There are times when it's really hard to pray. Maybe it's always hard to pray. And whether you know it or not, That sin that's defeating you is corroding and corrupting your spiritual vitality. And you may not be aware of it, you may not know it, but chances are those that are closest to you are being affected by it. Now, I know we all sin, right? I'm not up here saying, hey, you know, there's some of us that are holy and some of you that are sinners. Please don't hear that at all. We all struggle. We all sin as part of our nature. By the grace of Christ only, we can stand. But there's certain times in our lives when we allow an area of sin just to kind of go unchecked, whether it's because we think it's not really a big deal or we're just afraid of the consequences of bringing that area of sin out into the light. And, and, and if you're in this place right now, and, and my guess is a lot of us are, I mean, probably half the room or more probably is thinking of something right now in your mind. By the grace of God, Jesus with his eyes of flame would pierce through your handsome or beautiful exterior and say, I desire to do spiritual surgery on your heart so that you can live again. Now, I'd say it this way. If if this describes you and there's an area of sin that you're just kind of just not getting after, not addressing, not not opening your hands to, to God, not opening your hands to Christ with, there's really one of three things that will happen. Number one is, by the grace of God, you might see the spiritual off-ramp that is confession and repentance and move toward life, move toward the path. That's my heart, that's my desire for you as your pastor, is for those of you in the room that are identifying with these words right now that you'd say, all right, this, this is my warning, right? I'm heading toward this waterfall, and most mornings I don't actually consciously believe that, but every now and then the Spirit of God that is in me will sort of prick me And I'll realize, man, I'm heading for a potential disaster here. And today, right now, this morning, I'm going to turn from that. I'm going to go down this other path. It may be a hard path. It may cost me some things, as it would have these Christians in Thyatira. But I'm going to go down that path. 
That's one thing that can happen. I pray that will happen. The second thing that can happen, this is also by God's grace. He may, in his good kindness, allow your secret dark sin to be pulled out against your will into the light. And you may get discovered. You may get caught. And listen, if that happens, when that happens, for some of you, that has already happened. It is the grace of God to restore you to vitality, to restore you to life. It's the grace of God saying enough is enough. I love you too much to allow this to take you out. The third thing that may happen, scripture actually talks about at some point in time, your conscience will get seared and God will allow you, scripture says, to give you over to that sin. Now what exactly does that mean? It doesn't mean you're gonna lose your salvation. If you're a believer in Christ, it doesn't matter what areas of sin you're struggling with or how bad you've been off or you've gotten off the track, you are still saved. And yet to be given over to your sin essentially means you will collapse on your deathbed, however that happens to you someday, whether it's 30 years down the road, 40 years down the road, or next week, and you will have shriveled up inside of your soul. And there will be a part of you that's no longer spiritually vital, no longer spiritually alive, no longer able to love people around you, no longer able to serve Christ with a clear conscience. You're going to bear the weight of the sin until your death. That's the third path. And so my encouragement and admonishment is to you, which of those three are you going to choose? There's no other option. And I hope and pray you take the path of repentance. Right? And, and normally when you think about repentance and confession, it just feels like this like spanking. It's not a spanking. It's a restoration. Jesus would desire to restore you, to restore your life again. But will it cost? Yes, it will cost. And this is the second point that I, w- I want to go to. So first category, all of you who are just kind of just living in areas of sin that you just know are wrong and you just don't know what to do about it, you have a chance. You have an opportunity to repent, confess. And here's my encouragement, by the way, is just talk to anybody, a friend you feel like you can trust, a a, a family member, a pastor, no judgment. It's just there's grace and restoration. That's our heart. That's our goal. All right, but just talk to somebody and say, listen, this is, out of, this is kind of out of control in my life. I don't like to admit it is, but this is a little bit out of control in my life. I need to talk to someone about it. That's what it looks like to take that off-ramp, all right? Now, second application, this applies to every single person in this room right now, every one of us. There's a part of us that identifies with this dilemma that the Thyatirans were experiencing. Let me explain what I mean. What would it cost them to disassociate themselves from these licentious trade, bank, trade guild banquets? It might cost them everything. It might cost them their jobs. It might cost them their livelihood. They might be on the street begging. They might have to leave that town and go practice their trade in some other town. They might lose their home. They might lose their savings. They might be ostracized. They might lose their reputation. You see what was at stake? Now, here's where this cuts to the core, to the heart of these people. They have a choice to make. Do you believe that Jesus Christ is the one who will provide for you and feed you, if necessary, out of his hand? Or do you believe that your provision comes from the trade guilds who worship these other false gods? Now, we do the same thing. Anything and everything that's important to you in your life, you have a hard time opening your hand to God. You just do. I do, you do, we all do. What's the most important thing in your life? My kids, my job, my career, my family, my my household, my reputation, my grandkids, whatever it is. Isn't it difficult to do this with God and say, God, I'm gonna follow your path in this area of my life and I'm afraid it's gonna cost me. I'm afraid what you're gonna do. And what's the root core of that? Is we don't really deep down trust God. 
Like we don't trust his love for us. We don't, we struggle to anyway. We do in part and then we don't. Like we're constantly like giving and taking away in our trust of, of God. This is why we sing songs this morning like we did this morning to kind of bring us back into God, your provision. You're holy. You'll provide for us. We're your kids. We're your children. We're your chosen ones. Remember a few weeks ago, we talked about this gap that we all have between our professed theology, you know, what we say we believe and what we really confess to believe, and then actually what our practical theology, how we live our lives out. There's a gap for every one of us. In other words, you say you believe God loves you, and yet it's just really a struggle to trust him with your kids, or it's really tough, it's a struggle to trust him with your sexuality, or it's a real struggle to trust him with, with your appearance, or it's a real struggle to trust him with, you know, you fill in the blank. Jesus wants to close the gap And he wants to close the gap for the Christians in Thyatira. And essentially what he's saying is, will you trust me to be the son of God for you? Will you trust me to provide? Will you trust me that no matter what it costs you, you will in the end get the morning star? You see? The reason we struggle trusting God in these areas of tension and these dilemmas in our lives with things that matter to us is because the choice is between something visible and tangible that you can see and taste and something invisible and somewhat intangible that you can't even really wrap your physical arms around. What are you going to choose? Are you going to say, okay, I would rather have the short-term pleasure of the sexual gratification, to use this example, rather than the pain in the weight of waiting for Christ to meet my inner loneliness and need for intimacy apart from that. Are you going to say when it comes to your kids, I would rather control their lives because I can't bear to let them get out of my my, my sight and my control because I love them so much? Or are you going to say, I'm going to trust the invisible father? Who loves them more than I do, even though it's hard to imagine. You see, we go back and forth in our minds, the invisible versus the visible. And this is the challenge for the church at Thyatira. Trade guilds, tangible, versus an invisible father to provide for them. Sexual fulfillment, tangible, versus this idea that, that their bodies are a temple of the Holy Spirit. Honor God with your body. Well, what does that look like? This is the life of faith. We're actually, in a sense, trading in physical things that our hearts desires for invisible things that are greater for us. And and a lot of it's about delayed gratification because they're saying, you're going to be filled, church. You will be. You just have to wait for the real kingdom. Wait for the real earth, you see. Now, I'm not saying there's not great joy and sort of, you know, inner spiritual strength that comes when we obey. So it's not all about like sacrifice and pain and all those kinds of things. No, man, there's spiritual vitality that comes when you put your trust in Christ. When you say, I'm not going to try to meet my own needs through this sin area of my life. I'm instead going to trust the God who will provide for me according to his timing. You will come alive. This is what Jesus Christ wanted for the church. At Thyatira, this is what he wants for our church. This is what me as one of your pastors deeply desires for each and every one of you. It's what I desire for myself. I want to be spiritually alive. I want to be able to love my family and my friends and, and, and be a part of the leadership of this church with integrity and vitality because this is what you've called me to, Jesus Christ. And if I'm messing around with these other things, trying to get pleasure and trying to get, get fulfillment out of stuff that will never bring it to me, I will never be vital. I will never be fully alive. Jesus would say this, most of our desires are too small. He's not saying, church, 
Cut off your desires, that, that hunger for intimacy in your soul that leads you to pornography or, or that desire to, for people to think well of you that leads you to lying or, or that inner pain in you that just wants to be healed that leads you to bursts of anger. Don't cut off those desires. Desire something bigger. Desire to be fully alive. Desire me, the morning star. Our appetites are too small. We eat food sacrificed to idols when we could have intimacy with our Savior Jesus. Now, I want to do something as we close. This is heavy, right? This is weighty. Right? No, no apologies for that. It's God's word that I feel like sometimes just needs to fall upon us. But I want to direct us to hope. I want to pray for you. I want to pray for us as a body. And so where my heart turned this week as honestly this scripture passage fell upon me with weight was, was I went to Psalm 39 or Psalm 139 in my head. You don't need to turn there. I'm gonna read it over you as we pray. In fact, go ahead and bow your head. And Father, as, as I read this Psalm, this is my prayer for our body, for the Christians at the Church of Fellowship Franklin that you've given me some stewardship over. And Father, I feel weak. And I feel, even in this room right now, I feel some of the weight of the areas of sin that is represented in this room that I don't actually know about, but I just know is here. I know is a part of their lives. And Father, there's not judgment in me. There's just deep compassion and there's a deep desire for this tree that is this family of faith to be spiritually alive in every area and for the branches of this tree, the members of this body to be restored to the vine that will give them life. So Father, I pray, Psalm 139, for us as a church this morning. Oh Lord, you have searched us and you know us. You know when we sit down and when we rise up. You understand our thoughts from afar. You scrutinize our paths and our lying down. You're intimately acquainted with all of our ways. Even before there are words on our tongues, behold, O oh Lord, you know them all. Where could we go from your spirit? Where could we flee from your presence? If we ascend to the heaven, you're there. If we make our bed in Sheol, behold, you are there. If we take the wings of the dawn, if we dwell in the remotest part of the sea, even there your hand will lead us. Your right hand will lay hold of us. Even if we were to try to flee from your piercing gaze, there is no place we could hide. And Father, if we fully understand the truth of our relationship to you, we would not want to hide. We would want to run into your presence and bring all of our dirt, all of our shadow, all of our addictions right into your throne room. So this is my prayer for my brothers and sisters at the Church of Franklin.
that you would search us, O oh God, that you would know our heart, that you would try us and know our anxious thoughts. There are many anxious thoughts in this room. That you would see us, that you would see if there be any hurtful, harmful way in us. And then, Father, by your grace, through the gospel of your Son, Jesus Christ, that you would lead us in the everlasting way. That you would lead us through the off-ramp of repentance and confession. That you would fill us with an ongoing commitment to living according to your word, not just to try to please some deity that doesn't know us, but to exist in core communion with our Father who loves us and desires good things for us. And Father, I imagine even as I pray the way of everlasting life that you have for men and women in this room, marriages that might have a chance to be restored men who feel so empty inside and incapable, inept of leading their family, feeling a sense of wind in their sails again as they restore their relationship with you. Women who are struggling with hurt and bitterness and the woundedness that they're carrying with them and that's coming out as anger. Father, I pray for forgiveness that you would allow them to extend that to others. Young men, young women in this room that have started down paths that would not lead to life, that have experienced things and tasted things that you would not have for them. Father, I see restoration for them in this everlasting way that you have for our church can only come through your spirit and I'm asking for it. We together are in one accord asking for your healing asking for your restoration, asking for even a revival spiritually in our midst. Father, I thank you for this church. I thank you for the way the men and women love you. They love your word. They love to worship. They come together. They love each other. They're being formed into a community. They're getting to know each other. They're starting to think about how they can reach out to this community. Oh, God, there's so many good things going on. I just pray that the hollow emptiness of unconfessed and unrepentant sin would not make us empty inside. Help us to hear this word this morning from your word through your spirit and put it into practice by the grace of your son, Jesus Christ. It's in his name that we all pray. Amen. Amen. Go with God this week. We'd love to see you on Wednesday night and look forward to journeying in this Easter season with you together.